0: verses 1 to 21 if you're using one of the pew bibles round about you it's on page 1093 or thereabouts 1093 few born-again believers of christ would ever consider belonging to a church that did not or was not committed to evangelism, to share the gospel with people. Few genuine Christians would ever be happy in a church where the majority of time and money was spent on serving the church inwardly rather than reaching the lost outwardly. And few bona fide believers would want to be Part of a church that is unconcerned for the three billion people and more in nations where Jesus Christ is not preached. Yet, one of the most common deficiencies in a Christian's life is an unwillingness to share the gospel with unbelievers. And one of the most common deficiencies in churches in Scotland is that the majority of money and time is spent on serving and sustaining the organization rather than reaching the lost but why is this I don't think it's that people don't want to believe the gospel for themselves we do do that I don't think it's because we don't care about people's plight from plight apart from knowing Jesus I think we do care it's not really that we necessarily have logical reasons for our practice I think that sometimes we just don't plan Sometimes we just don't take time to think. Sometimes it's down to a fear of man, let's face it. We worry more about our own reputation and what people will think of us as we talk about Jesus than we do worry about what obedience to God looks like. Sometimes it's a lack of vision, we just do what we do. Sometimes we never plan to make time for non-Christian friends and in that case we can never really expect them to come to hear the gospel Or find faith in Jesus. There's a disconnect somewhere. I say that speaking from personal experience. Heart, you know, joyfully believing all the things I believe. Does my life fully reflect what I believe? Does my calendar look like I'm determined to commit to the very things that my mouth says I'm committed to? I see a disconnect in me. Do you see a disconnect in you? What will help us recalibrate our thinking and our living? Especially when it comes to something as serious as sharing the gospel. As making disciples, as we are called to do. Well, Acts chapter 2, I think, helps us. There is much in this chapter, I think, that helps us. To give you some context, in chapter one we've already seen that the Lord Jesus, before he ascended, spent time teaching and training his apostles, given many convincing proofs of his resurrection from the dead. He had said to them, Acts chapter one, verse eight, remember key, key text to unlocking this book of Acts You will receive power and you will be my witnesses Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. You will testify to the truth about me, Jesus, everywhere. That was their job. And last time, last week, we saw and recognized the confidence that we have in the testimony of the witnesses, as we have them in the Bible, as their words provide the foundation for the church that Jesus himself is building. And today we see the promise of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 fulfilled, so let's read it together. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost came, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. This is God's words. Well, let me map this out for you. We're going to take this in three points. I've tried to make it memorable for you by uh, using a line from a song, a Christian song, just to be sure. Filled with power, that's point one. Power to proclaim, that's point two. What's point three? Salvation in Jesus' name. See, you've got it already. Great. Number one, filled with power. This is what we see in verses one to three. The Holy Spirit lives in you to help you. When we're thinking about what is this, what is with this disconnect between what we say with our mouths and what we do with our lives, the Holy Spirit has filled us with power. First of all, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is, of course, God. He is the third person of the Trinity, possessing all the attributes of divinity when God the Holy Spirit is at work it is God who is working of course he is not an it he is not an impersonal force he teaches he comforts he leads he changes hearts he he guides he convects all these different things are relationally based and are done by a person not an it not an impersonal force is this the first time that we have seen the Holy Spirit working in the world no, in the centuries before Jesus came, he was involved in creation. He is continually involved in sustaining creation. He has given special prophets and kings the ability to speak God's word. We see that in the Old Testament, even as we saw last week. The Holy Spirit spoke through your servant David. We believe in something called verbal plenary inspiration. There it is right there in, in brief The Holy Spirit spoke, there's the verbal, plenary, the authority with it, well, it's the Holy Spirit who's speaking, inspiration through David. He gave spiritual understanding to God's people and brought times of serious renewal and devotion to God. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament we see gives gifts of leadership and service in other ways. Those are the things he did before Jesus came. He fills and empowers then in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, we see him at work, even in the virgin birth, all the way through to Christ's resurrection from the dead. And when we see Jesus do and say all that he did and said in the Gospels, we often just kind of put it down to the fact that Jesus was deity. You know, he is the eternal Son of God. That's certainly significant, wouldn't want to downplay that at all. But one thing I think that we can be tempted to downplay is actually the role of the Holy Spirit in his life and work now Luke is very careful to record the events of Jesus baptism for us why because he wants us to see as part of that that Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit for the work that he will do in his three years of ministry and when John baptized Jesus he heard something and saw something didn't he he heard the father's audible affirmation from heaven This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And he saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. So there was an audible and a visible affirmation of Jesus as the son of God, the Messiah. And immediately what we see after that is the spirit led him out to the desert to be tested. And then immediately after that we have Jesus preaching at Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Anointed to preach. Now, don't miss this. As Jesus' baptism, as I said, John heard something and saw something that demonstrated that God was at work through the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned that to highlight for us that Luke is, Luke is concerned to highlight the same thing happens early on in the church's ministry in Acts chapter 2. At Pentecost, the disciples also heard something and saw something that demonstrated that the Holy Spirit was at work in them, was, was, if you like, anointing them, filling them for ministry. What did they hear? They heard a sound, verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. I'm pretty sure most of us have experienced the sound of a, of a strong wind on a stormy day. Maybe some of you in your wild times would like drive along and stick your head out the window. You know, it's that kind of noise. Well, it's not even anything like that, I'm sure. This sounded violent. It came from heaven. In other words, alerting us to the fact that Jesus is continuing the, to act behind the scenes as he promised. He's keeping his promise to send the Spirit whom the Father had promised. So that's what they heard. And if they heard, if what they heard communicated that something powerful was taking place, Then the thing that they saw communicated that it was happening not just to a certain few of them, but all of them. Because what they saw next were tongues of fire. Fire is a common theme in theophanies in the Old Testament. Theophanies are just appearances of God. Think about Moses in the burning bush. Why was Moses so interested in this bush? Because it was on fire, yet not consumed. Okay? It was not consumed. This was happening in order to communicate the very presence of God. And from the bush, of course, the Lord spoke. I think it's the same thing that's intended here. But what we see are these tongues of fire separating and resting on everyone. In other words, God's Spirit is not just present in his people corporately. Every individual is touched by a tongue of fire in this instance. And we assume it's the 120 that were gathered that we looked at last week. It's not just the apostles. And no longer would it just be special individuals like Moses or David or Elijah who were anointed by the Holy Spirit for service. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit won't just be for the apostles only. No, this is for the whole church. For the whole church. What does it mean? Well, with these signs came the filling of the Holy Spirit. What did they mean? Well, really, they signified a couple of things. One, it marked the dawning of a new era in salvation history. The thing we looked at in the first sermon in the series, in Acts, the age of missions. The time between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. And it marked, secondly, a tremendous enhancement, or if you like, the spreading out of the Spirit's ministry, resulting in the experience of Each and every believer knowing what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God, alive to the reality of God's saving work in their own lives and enabled with gifts to serve in whatever way the Lord wants us to serve and filled, empowered to do God's work. As Gordon Fee says, the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. I think this is what Jesus was talking about in John 14 and John 16. In those chapters, he's saying something strange. I mentioned at the start of the service if it is better for you that I go, well, what could be better than having Jesus at your side, having the Holy Spirit in you? He lives in us, makes us alive to God, empowers us for mission. What difference then does that make for us when we consider the disconnect between what we say with our mouths? and what our calendars look like what difference does that make in regards to the disconnect between what our word, what our mouths say when we're in church on a Sunday and what our mouths say when we're with others midweek and have the opportunity to share something and don't Somebody might be asking, how do I know if the Holy Spirit lives in me? Well, you trust in Jesus. You have conviction of sin and your dependence on Jesus. You have a deep sense of love for Jesus. You live for Jesus. You talk to others about Jesus. These are all the marks of the Spirit's work in us. We bear fruit in keeping with the Spirit who is alive in us. I had a friend of mine once who who used to keep on going on at me about you need you need the pouring out of the holy spirit liam and i would say yep i've got the job which really i think that would be quite important for me and what he was talking about was you need like a second blessing we need the kind of the pentecost experience Well, I don't think this is teaching us that the Pentecost experience is the normal experience. I think the normal experience for people who become Christians is is actually at the end of Acts when you have 3,000 people in verse 41 who accept the message, baptized and, and membered up in the church. That's more of a normative experience for us. But what difference does it make to our disciple making to realize that we are filled with power, that the Holy Spirit lives in each and every one of us? For the 120 that were gathered on this day, the wind and fire were outward signs of that inner reality. God making his home in them. And that inner presence then was evidenced by what was produced in them. What do we see? Words. Words. When the Holy Spirit lives in you, you have, number two, power to proclaim. You're enabled to talk to others about Jesus. Now Luke, I think, is very, very careful to show us the link between filling, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and speaking. Verse 4, look with me, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And this link between the filling of the Spirit and speaking words is seen throughout the passage. Look with me at 2.14. Here's Peter. Freshly filled with the Holy Spirit, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Filled, speaks. 2.17, I will pour out my spirit on all people, says Joel. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Filled, speak. So prophesying is. 2.18, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. You see the continual link? Filling is tied to speaking. Now what does it mean when it's talking about tongues in this text? Let me be clear that the tongues here are other languages that people from other parts of the world can understand. Luke says there were people in that crowd from 15 different cities or regions. The tongues in verse 4 are the languages in verses 6 and 8. How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So these guys basically filled with the spirit are then miraculously enabled to speak languages that they've never learned. It's a miracle of speaking not hearing. You can see how that would come in very handy of course if you were just being tasked to reach the nations. I suppose it would be like me bursting into fluent Mandarin without having ever learned the language. I won't. What about prophecy? Well the spirit comes as people speak. That's I think that's really what prophecy means here in the broad sense of the word. Because what you have is the spirit coming. The result is miraculous, intelligible proclamation of what? The mighty works of God. And if this is what the spirit works in those he fills, what then do we make of our silence? Why do we keep quiet? Are we subduing something? Are we being disobedient? I think sometimes we're fearful. Fearful of what we might lose, like friendships. Fearful of what people might think. We value our reputation. But I think Acts 2 shows us that the presence of the Spirit should bring in us, bring out in us, words, declarative words of the mighty works of God, filled with power. To do what? To proclaim, to speak. But that's not all he brings. In Acts 2, we see that the presence of the Spirit brings about also a fearlessness in us. It's not often that we experience a fearlessness when it comes to sharing the gospel. I certainly feel anxious at the prospect of it. Is that right? I think this is what the drunkenness Is about because not only is there a link between filling and speaking, there's a link between this filling and fearlessness. The crowds hear commotion, they're bewildered. Some in verse some are saying, What does this mean? But others are saying they've had too much wine, verse thirteen. Now why would they think that? Well, think about what happens when a person gets drunk. They lose their inhibitions, don't they? Why else do people sing at one o'clock in the morning, walking up your street at the top of their voice? Do they do that at 2pm or 5pm when they're coming home from work? Why is it that karaoke becomes progressively more popular in pubs as the night goes on? People lose their inhibitions. Now, alcohol does that to people. Why? Well, because it's a depressant. That doesn't mean that it makes you depressed. It means it dulls your brain function, really, to reality. So the reason people lose their inhibitions is because alcohol makes them look stupid, basically. And the fact that people lose their inhibitions with it, the fact that it kind of hides reality, you can understand why people, some people become addicted to it. But that's not how it goes with the Holy Spirit. When he fills you, he gives you joy by sharpening your awareness to realities so heavenly so right, so true, so unbelievably unlike anything you have ever heard in your life that you lose your inhibitions and express God's words, God's mighty acts with a fearless joy. These people are saying, you can't be that happy. You can't be that bold without being drunk. That's their explanation. Think about how joyful and happy these Apostles were, these 120 were on that day, declaring the mighty acts of God. Man, they just must be drunk. Look at that, that's terrible. Well, they're not. They're filled with the Spirit. That's Peter's explanation. Look with me at verse 15. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In, my la- in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And that's what launches us into Peter's sermon. Now think about who it is that's doing the sermon, preaching the sermon. Peter. One of the disciples. Now the disciples collectively are presented kind of as a dull, confused, rash, selfish and downright scared sometimes in the gospel accounts. They had spines of jelly at times when Jesus is arrested in the garden. Well one or two tried to put up a something of a fight, but then they all scarper. But now, look, they're all boldly declaring the mighty works of God, as verse 11 says. And then look at Peter. Peter with a foot-shaped mouth. There cannot be many people in heaven who can claim to have rebuked the Son of God. Uh, I'm sure it's one that he would rather forget. But, you know, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered over to chief priests and elders. I'm going to die. Peter says, no, 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 you're not. Okay. Have a think, Peter. But now look at him. Verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. This is Jerusalem. Jesus had just been crucified 50 days before this. Does he look like someone who's fearing for his life? No, what has changed? Well, everything. Everything has changed with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The violence and the loudness of the wind has drowned out their puny fears. The flames on their heads have ignited their hearts with an unquenchable passion for declaring the glory of God through the mighty, mighty works that he has undertaken. Throughout history, yes, but primarily in the life and work of Jesus Christ, his son. And every ounce of timidity and hesitancy and uncertainty in these guys was just swallowed up in the knowledge of God's greatness and the knowledge that they had just been filled with the power of God and enabled to do this work and as a result Peter and others would preach with incredible boldness and unwavering zeal they would unashamedly tell the world about Jesus and this this is the thing the same spirit lives in us we are filled so that we can speak. We are filled that we can know a joyful fearlessness in sharing the gospel. So why do I not do it? Why do we not do it? Is there a disconnect between what is true and really what we believe? Because this is, this, what this says is true. Do we just think it's quite, not quite convincing enough for us? <laughs> maybe we convinced ourselves that the holy spirit lives in us really only as a deposit guaranteeing heaven to come he is that and that's wonderful but he's it's more than that when we're filled with the spirit he's not given to us just so that we can know assurance maybe we're just convinced ourselves that the holy spirit lives in us to be like a, a chisel with us to conform us more and more to the likeness of jesus well praise god he does that day after day after day he's Seeking to conform us more to the likeness of his son. But it's more than that. We're filled with power. With power to proclaim, with words, and joyful fearlessness. Number three, salvation in Jesus' name. Your words help people see their need for salvation. Peter's trying to get across to the people who are listening to this sermon that this is the age of opportunity. Peter declares this to be the day of Pentecost. This is the day that the Lord promised Joel when his spirit would be poured out. And Joel, of course, in context talks five times about this thing called the day of the lord which looks forward beyond the pouring out of the holy spirit to the day when the lord will bring about his final judgment for those who are in christ and have faith in christ it will be a great and a glorious day the Bible makes no hesitation, though, in saying that for those who are not in Christ, who don't believe in Christ, who reject Christ, it will be a terrible day, a dreadful day. In fact, it's, it's described in such ways that it would say, it is better to, to die under an avalanche of falling, jagged rocks than to face the Lord on this day. It's pretty graphic. Five times Joel says that day of the Lord is near. But the day of the, Spirit's, the Spirit being poured out will come before that. And that will be the time of opportunity. It will be, as Joel said, an open ended period before the day of the Lord when, when the Spirit would be poured out and on everybody, it says. Now, everybody? Like everybody who lives? Well, no. The Spirit will be at work in the world, as John chapter 16 says. He works in the world. I will send him to you when he comes, that is the spirit, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, the spirit will be at work in the world to convict the world of sin. But he's not filling everyone in the way that he does believers. No, Joel's everybody is not everybody irrespective of their readiness to repent of sins and believe in Jesus, but everybody irrespective of their past, their background, their age, their sex or status that's what's going on when he's saying your sons and daughters young men old men servants everybody all these things that might discriminate people when it comes to the pouring out of the spirit when it comes to those who are who are permitted to come to God in faith through Jesus Christ there's no discrimination all are invited all are called to come But it's not only an invitation open for all, but an urging. And this is what we see as Peter quotes Joel. He makes one subtle change, actually, from the original text. Joel says, It shall come to pass, but Peter says, It's begun. It's today. These days are now here, which means that God's final day then is nearer than it has ever been. God's clock has moved on, and now there is this window of opportunity when everyone, young, old, rich, poor, male, female, educated or not, grown up in a Christian home or not, whatever, all may come and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And having called upon the name of the Lord, be filled with the Spirit of God so that they too will have power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. At the sound of this is an encouraging thing for us as well At the sound of these words Words of explanation concerning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, what what does this text tell us will happen? It tells us that people will call on the name of the Lord. He is not calling us to a futile exercise. He is bringing his sheep into his fold. He is leading his children home. For all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ, he grants them the joy of being sons. free them from being slaves to sin and as he did with the prodigal adorning him with all the rights and privileges of sonship you're my child salvation and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved Peter says well the Lord who brings salvation is Jesus who saves from sin and judgment Everyone who calls on his name will be saved. Friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, do you realize that you need saved? If we do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're not for him and if we're not following him, we are not in some kind of neutral status. We are at enmity with him, the Bible says. That means basically we're hostile towards him. We're not for him. We're not, we are not might not be for him, You might say, well, I'm not against him. I'm kind of in between. Well, that doesn't exist, that that difference. In our unbelief, we face God's punishment for our sin. And that punishment is death and hell. But if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, sent by the Father to die on the cross to take away our sins and if we believe that God raised him from the dead three days later to prove that he really was the son of God and that to prove to us that if we believe in him we really will be pardoned of our sin then we will be saved saved from that death in hell saved into an eternity with God himself dwelling beautifully and wondrously in love a million times better than the fearless joy expressed by these guys at Pentecost we will delight in him forever enjoy the delight of being with God forever and in the meantime have the special privilege of sharing this gospel with others leading friends, family members total strangers to call on him as well so that we might in this age of opportunity and age of mission realize that we are filled with power power to proclaim salvation in Jesus name trust in him you can pray to him tonight by confessing your sins to him in prayer that's talking to God saying sorry for those sins and expressing your belief in Jesus Christ please do that if not come and have a chat with us we'd be glad to talk to you about it brothers and sisters we are filled with power The Holy Spirit lives in us. Power to proclaim. Filling leads to speaking. Filling leads to a joyful fearlessness. Power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. Isn't it the best news you've ever heard? Aren't you immensely delighted that someone shared this news with you? Well, you were never intended to be a terminus point for this gospel, but a station in this great age of mission. And there's station after station after station to come until Jesus returns. That's the terminus point. Until then, we fill up our mouths. We believe God's words. We speak words. We declare the mighty acts of God as much as we can. And we pray big prayers. (coughs) Fill these seats, Lord. Save this city, Lord. Help us knock off unreached people groups from this world, Lord. We, what else can we do? Let's bow our heads and take a moment to respond in quiet.